The Gospel of Isaiah, or rather the prophecy of Isaiah, has been called the Gospel of the Old Testament. There is more teaching about the coming Messiah and the New Covenant in the prophecy of Isaiah than in any other portion of the Old Testament. Now, this is the week before Christmas. Clearly, as I said earlier, the most anticipated day of the year. And our thoughts cannot escape the narratives and the songs concerning Jesus' birth. And we don't have to travel far into the prophecy of Isaiah before we find prophecies about the coming Messiah. And so I ask that you would turn in your Bibles, please, to Isaiah chapter 9 and follow as I read verses 1 to 7. That will be our text for this morning. Isaiah 9. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nations. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil, for you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, and at the, as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. I'm calling this sermon... From this text, the dawn of a new day. And let's begin by considering from verse 1 the promise of a new day. Listen again to verse 1 of Isaiah 9. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The passage before us begins with a but, or if you have New King James, a nevertheless. That is a word of contrast. And indeed, there is a contrast. We're going to see that Isaiah is bringing us from the gloom of chapter 8 to the glory of what he is going to say in chapter 9. Chapter 8 is a gloomy chapter. It's a prediction of the invasion of the Assyrians who will come in and take the northern kingdom of Israel captive. That's a captivity from which they will never return. God had been so patient with his people. Century after century, he had endured their grumbling, their complaining, and worse than that, their flagrant idolatry, which had even stooped to the level where they would sometimes offer their children and child sacrifice to the god Molech. They committed spiritual harlotry again and again, running after the gods of the nations, looking to the fertility god Baal or Baal to bring crops and rain to them. 
and not to the true God. Though the true God, Yahweh, had miraculously delivered them from bondage in the land of Egypt, miraculously sustained them for 40 years in the wilderness, supernaturally delivered them from the pagan nations, overthrew the pagan nations, and brought them into this wonderful land flowing with milk and honey. Repeatedly in the book of Judges, God would hear their plaintive cries and again and again would raise up deliverers for them. But in spite of that, they stiffened their necks. They hardened their hearts. They stopped their ears from listening to the prophets that God would repeatedly send to them to warn them of the coming judgment and to call them back to himself. What did they do with those prophets? They beat them. They imprisoned them. They killed them all to avoid the message that they were bringing from Yahweh. Finally, God, who we are told is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Finally, God got to the point where he said, enough, enough. You like the nations? You like the gods of the nations? That's where you're going to go. And dear friends, let me just pause to say, that God is a very patient God, but his patience has a limit. And when anyone insists on saying over and over again, my will be done, my will be done, my will be done, God may get to the point where he says, okay, have it your way, your will be done. And that's the worst thing that could possibly happen to us on planet Earth. And so even as our first parents were banished from the paradise in Eden, the covenant people of God would be banished from the pleasant land given to them by God. The Assyrian captivity of the northern kingdom would foreshadow what would happen a hundred years later, and that was the captivity of the southern kingdom, Judah, into Babylon. And it is the southern kingdom that um, Isaiah is addressing. Chapter 8 of Isaiah ends with these gloomy words, then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. But when chapter, when chapter 9 comes around, we have the introduction of hope. Darkness will be turned into light. Gloom will give way to glory. A day is coming, and Isaiah is so confident that he speaks of it as though it has already happened. And I want you to notice the place where this will take place from verse 1. In the land of Zebulun and in the land of Naphtali. These were the two northernmost tribes of Israel. And in the Old Testament, they were viewed with contempt. Why? Because they were the farthest away from Jerusalem, the capital. They were closest to the Gentiles, and they were under the influence of the Gentiles. And so Isaiah calls it Galilee of the Gentiles. It is worth noting that even when we come to the New Testament, Galilee was viewed as a despised place. Remember these comments, John 1:46, speaking of a city in Galilee, Nazareth. Nathaniel says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Because it was in Galilee. In John 7, 52, the Pharisees say to Nicodemus, when Nicodemus seems to be sympathetic to Jesus, they say contemptuously, you are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. And then in Matthew 26, when Peter is warming himself by the fire and the servant girl says to Peter, you too were with Jesus, the Galilean, by the way you talk gives you away. Apparently they had a particular accent, which wasn't especially appreciated 
But it is to this despised land, this despised land that God will choose to honor and make glorious. Why? Because the certain son of a carpenter will choose to make his home there in Galilee. Matthew 4.13, and leaving Nazareth, he, Jesus, came and settled at Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, saying, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. So a new day is coming, Isaiah says, and its focal point will be the despised land of northern Israel, the land of Galilee. Now, who will the people of this new day be? What people will experience this new day? Well, look again at the text, verse 2. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. Does this mean only the nation of Israel? Well, we've already seen from verse 1 that there's mention of the Gentiles. And one of the great themes of Isaiah is that the suffering servant of Yahweh will be a light not merely to the Jews, but also to the Gentile nations. And so in one of the servant songs, Isaiah 42, 6, we read this. I am the Lord. I have called you, and that would be Messiah, in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. And in another one of the servant songs of Isaiah, as they are known, he, Yahweh, says, and he's speaking again to his suffering servant, is it too small a thing? It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This new day is coming. And who will it affect? Not only Israel, it will affect the nations to the ends of the earth. And doesn't that coincide with God's covenant with Abraham? God said to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. But not only that, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This great light will shine, not only in Israel, but to the nations, even to the ends of the earth. Now, what was the plan for this great day? When this day comes, what is the glory that it will bring? Well, first of all, the new day brings light. Again, verse 2. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. There's the image of light replacing darkness. And notice that the light is something seen. The light comes from outside. Friends, we are not to look for light on the inside. Don't look for light within yourself. There is no light there. The light comes from the outside. Even as at the beginning, God said, let there be light, and there was light. Light is a gift from God. Light comes from God, and so here. But what is this light that will come to replace the darkness of the nations? Well, consider that darkness is a metaphor for several things. Darkness is a metaphor for ignorance. In Ephesians 4.18, we're told that the Gentiles are darkened in their understanding. So light brings knowledge, in this case, the knowledge of God. Darkness is also a symbol in the Bible for error. 
In Romans 1.21, we're told they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. They lapsed into error. They were not interpreting God and the world rightly. And so light not only brings the knowledge of God, it brings truth in the place of error. Darkness is also a picture of evil. In Ephesians 5.11, it speaks of the unfruitful deeds of darkness and then In a few verses prior, it mentions immorality, impurity, greed, filthiness, silly talk. So darkness is also a picture of evil. And so light is a symbol for good, moral goodness and righteousness. And finally, darkness is a symbol of death. It stands for death, eternal death. In Jude 6, it speaks of angels who abandoned their proper abode and are kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And so light brings life. It brings spiritual life and eternal life. Let me pause to ask you, are you a child of light? Has the light of God come to you? Here's how you can tell. Have you come out of the ignorance about God to a true knowledge of God? The Bible speaks of believers knowing God. Do you know God? Can you say, I know God? Have you been delivered from error to truth? Has your erroneous worldview, your view of life and reality, been enlightened by the word of God? So now you understand the Bible and you understand a right worldview. Have you received a new heart, a heart that was formerly darkness and and committed to evil deeds, to a, a heart that now loves goodness and loves righteousness? And were you who were once dead in your sin been made alive so that now you have spiritual life and are destined for eternal life. If that is the case, if you are a child of light, you have only God to thank. We have only God to thank, don't we? The light was not found within. The Bible says, Paul says, that God has shown in your heart to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And if you are not yet a child of light, hang on and listen, because I'm going to show you from the scriptures how you might become a child of light. And so this new day will bring light. Not only that, the new day will bring freedom. Look at verse 4 in Isaiah 9. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. The imagery here is of an animal, a beast of burden, who is laboring under a heavy wooden bar, a yoke over its neck, and it's oppressive. Well, the Israelites certainly knew oppression. They knew what it was like to be oppressed by the nation of Egypt. Now they're facing these these powers, these nations that are too powerful for them, uh, Assyria and then Babylon. But there's a worse oppression than physical slavery and captivity. The worst oppression that we can face in the world is the oppression of sin. Because that's an oppressor that we carry around with us. That's a slave master. We cannot escape because it goes wherever we go. Jesus said in John 8, 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. People today have a very perverted idea about freedom, don't they? You talk to most people, and they would define freedom as the right to do as I please. The right to be free from rules the right to be free from any moral restraints and and to do as I please. And so people live that way. But what is the result? The result is they get ensnared by habits they can't break that corrupt their souls. 
that take away their dignity, hurt others, destroy society. The Bible has a lot of lists of, of the corrupt deeds of, of our hearts. When men try to break free from the moral law of God, just one of them, Jesus says in Mark chapter 7, for from within, out of the heart of man, proceed. Let me just read some of these things. There are several of these catalogs of sin. Evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. That's what happens when you say, I want to be free from moral restraints. I want to do as, as I please. True freedom, according to the Bible, is not the right to do as you please. It is the power to do as you ought. It is the power to live as God intended us to live. But where does that freedom from oppression come from? It is a marvel when we consider that we have not learned it in the millennia of our existence. It has not been taught to us by education. It has not been taught by social sophistication. Technology has not improved us in our character. The experience of centuries has not improved us. Only this new day will bring about the freedom from this bondage. The freedom here is compared in the text to Gideon's victory. Do you remember what was notable about Gideon's victory? God accomplished it with 300 soldiers. He whittled the army down from 30,000 to 300. And remember what their weapons were? Trumpets, pitchers containing torches. There were no spears. There were no arrows, no swords, no chariots. And what is the point? This victory over oppression, the oppression of sin, will not be won by human strength. It will be secured by God. Even as God said to Midian, I will deliver you with the 300 men, for I have given the camp of Midian into your hands. So the new day will bring light and it will also bring peace. Look at verse 5 of Isaiah 9. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. Here are some emblems of warfare. The, the warrior's boot, whatever that was. We know that the Roman soldiers had hobnailed boots, which enabled them to gain traction as they were fighting in hand-to-hand combat. What the boot was then, but we don't know, I don't know, but, but it was a warrior's boot. And it speaks about the garment um, washed in blood, the cloak rolled in blood, the blood of the enemy. It will be burning. It will be fuel for the fire. In other words, when that day comes, The emblems of warfare will no longer be needed. The coming day will not be a day of warfare. It will be a day of peace. And when we talk about peace, what kind of peace are we talking about? Well, peace begins on the inside. Peace begins between us and God and then translates into peace within ourselves. And then that radiates outward to peace with others. When we talk about peace, it begins inwardly. It begins with peace with God and peace within yourself. And only then do you have peace in your relations. Why? Because once you're convinced that all is well between you and God, and you know who you are, you are at peace within your own skin, you no longer have to compete with others and strive with others. 
to make yourself look good and conquer others to give you a sense of self-worth. You have this peace between yourself and God, this peace within yourself, and that radiates outward in peaceful relations to others. Isaiah is talking here about a, a time, a new age in which there will be peace. He's talking about a new society which will be characterized by peace and not strife and not fighting and not war. What's he talking about? He's talking about the new covenant community of the redeemed. He's talking about the church, a place where people have peace with God and as a result, peace with one another, where there is largely the absence of jealousy and envy and backbiting and hurtful gossip and harsh words and angry countenances and selfish ambition and prideful self-assertion where the people are diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That's what he's talking about. And I might ask you, as part of that new covenant community characterized by peace, are you doing your part? Are you doing all you can to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace by attitudes of humility, by kind and gracious words and actions, by considering others more important than yourself? But this new day will bring a fourth thing. It will not only bring light in darkness, bring freedom from oppression, bring peace. It will be a day that will bring joy. Verse 3, this new day will bring joy. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Why did I take it in that order? Because before there's joy, there's freedom from bondage. Before there's joy, there's, there's peace and the absence of war. The life of fellowship with God brings joy. And the joy of the Bible, the joy of the believer, is not a giddy happiness. This life for all of us is a life of suffering. It's a veil or valley of tears for all of us. And the joy of the Lord, the joy of knowing God does not take away the sorrows of this life. That's why the Apostle Paul could say in 2 Corinthians 6.10, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. There's a paradox there. Can you have sorrow and joy at the same time? Yes. There are a lot of things that deeply sadden us in this world. But the joy of the Lord, but the, or the sorrows of this world, though they may diminish our joys, will never extinguish our joys. Because Christian joy, believing joy, is a deep undercurrent of well-being that says everything is well. Everything is in the control of my God. Everything is being worked together for my good. It is, as Paul says in Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. The joy spoken of the joy of the believer is a joy in the Lord. And when you study the concept of joy in the New Testament, Christian joy, it is always rooted in something connected with God and his eternal kingdom. That's why it is inextinguishable, although it may be diminished. So the new day that is coming, it will bring light, knowledge, truth, goodness, spiritual life. It will bring freedom from sin. It will bring peace within and peace with others. It will bring joy, a joy in God that is inextinguishable. But now we turn to what is the linchpin of this passage. The person who ushers in this new day, 
verses 6 and 7. How will this new day come? Why will this new day with light and peace and freedom and joy come? For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The Lord, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Here is the heart of the passage. This has been immortalized, of course, in the words of Handel's Messiah. Here we have the key to the coming of this new day. The reason there will be light and freedom and peace and joy. It has already been made clear that it is the day of the new covenant. It is the person and work of Jesus Christ who is in view, who made his home in lowly despised Galilee and who is responsible for the glory that is coming to the world. And that glory has come in its first installment. We live in the wake of the glorious incarnation of God in the person of Jesus and the once-for-all redemption that he accomplished on the cross. And about this one, I want to note three things. First of all, his identity. He's called a child born. He doesn't descend from heaven as a full-blown man with all the majestic glow of heaven. He's conceived in a virgin's womb. He's born as a helpless, frail, weak, utterly dependent baby. His only early communication by which he communicates that I'm hurting or I'm hungry is that he could cry. And yes, he did cry. No tantrum, no rebellious cry, but Jesus cried because he was a real baby. He is a child born, a son given. The idea of sonship connects him to David, who was promised in the Davidic covenant that I will raise up for your seed after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And he is called here mighty God. The word mighty is often used of men, men of valor, men of of warfare. But the word for God is El, and that is only used of deity. He is the mighty God. And here we have an amazing paradox. The one who will usher in this new day of light and liberty and peace and unparalleled joy. He is a baby who is God. He is a helpless babe who is mighty God. And our hymns at this season say it well, don't they? Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. And in the hymn, O come all ye faithful, God of God, light of light, lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb. Or from the hymn, Silent Night, Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. We should remember that only two chapters before chapter Nine is the messianic prophecy of 714. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Friends, here is the historic Orthodox Christian doctrine of the person of Jesus Christ. And you must believe this in order to be saved. And if you are saved, you do believe this. Jesus is fully God. Remember, we saw in the earlier hour in John 
8.24, he says, unless you believe that I am taking to himself the ego a me, the, uh, the name of Yahweh, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. You must believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. But you also must believe that he's fully man. John tells us in his epistle that those who are of God confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. And if you don't confess that, you're not of God. This is a historic Christian doctrine of the person of Christ that must be believed to be saved. He is fully God, fully man. He is the theanthropic person. He is the God man. Do you believe that about Jesus? I trust that you do. But not only his identity, but his authority is spoken of here. In the language of verse 6, the government will rest on his shoulders. And in verse 7, he is to be a king sitting on the throne of David. And it says, his reign will be in righteousness and justice. And what can we say about the reign of Jesus? What can we say about the kingdom of Jesus? Well, on the one hand, we can say it's already here. It is present. Haven't we seen this in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus comes into Galilee and he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom has come with the first coming of Jesus, and you enter it by believing the gospel. Are you a saved disciple of Jesus? Are you in the kingdom that Jesus came to bring when he came the first time? Here's the question to ask. Who sits on the throne of your life? Are you still sitting there reigning in your own life as the I am, the ego? Or has Jesus Christ displaced you? And can you say that Jesus Christ is my king? He's my Lord as well as my savior. That's how you know whether you have come into the kingdom that he has come to bring the first time he came. But the kingdom of Jesus is also a future kingdom. The day will come when he will manifestly rule over all. And so Paul says in Philippians 2.10 that in some point in the future, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, Jesus Christ is the linchpin to everybody's eternity. If you believe in him, you will live forever with him in the new heavens and new earth. If you reject him, and you will spend eternity in the lake of fire. And the reign of Jesus is characterized here in verse 7 as being in justice and righteousness. How different is Jesus from the earthly rulers that have come and gone and are still coming and going on planet Earth? The Tiglath Pileser in Assyria, the Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, the Hitler, the Stalin, the Pol Pot in Cambodia, the Idi Amin in Uganda, the Saddam Hussein in Iraq, the Muammar Gaddafi in Libya, the Assad in, in Syria, Putin in Russia, the Xi Jinping dictator in China, the Kim Jong-un in North Korea. These men are oppressive, power-hungry, brutal, cruel, murderous tyrants. In stark contrast to that, the reign of Jesus is one of righteousness and justice. Even as Peter says, describing the new heavens and new earth, it is a place where righteousness dwells. Where do you want to spend eternity? Under what rulership do you want to spend eternity? Do you want to be in the place where all those earthly tyrants are? Under the chief tyrant, Satan himself? That's where you will be if you reject Jesus. But if you receive him now as your king, 
then you will be in that blessed eternal kingdom where only righteousness, only peace, only purity, only joy, only love reigns supreme. That's where God's people are headed because of King Jesus. So we see his identity. We see his authority. What about his ministry? The remaining descriptions here I'm putting under the heading of his ministry. He is called Wonderful Counselor. The word wonderful, the idea of wonder, amazement. Often in the Psalms, God's works are are wonders to be marveled at. The word counsel has to do with plans or purposes. A, A counselor maps out a plan for you, right? And Jesus is the wonderful counselor. He is the counselor par excellence. And in two ways. He is the cosmic counselor in the sense that he is superintending all of human history along with his father. Ephesians 1.11 says, He, God, is working all things according to the counsel of his will. We're told that everything in the life of the believer works together for good to those who love God and are called according to his, perfect, his purpose. Jesus is the cosmic counselor. He's working everything out according to his perfect plan. And everything is perfectly timed. All things are perfectly coordinated. There is not an atom in the universe that is out of place. There is not a, he is not a nanosecond behind in his timing. His cosmic plan for the ages is perfect. He is the great cosmic counselor, but then he's a personal counselor too, isn't he? Jesus is one to whom we could go and seek wisdom for every little detail of our lives. He's he's near to us. He cares about us. And he gives us wise counsel as we acknowledge him in all of our ways. And brothers and sisters, we need to be a people who seek that counsel. We're told in the Bible to seek counsel from one another, and, and wise men and women do that. In an abundance of counselors, there's safety. But we don't want to seek human counsel apart from seeking the best counsel. We want to go to our Lord Jesus. He is the wonderful counselor. We want to get counsel from him, direction from him. And so we need to be a people of the book, a people who are reading, meditating on, marinating our souls in the word of God, communing with Jesus, talking to Jesus, getting direction in the very details of our lives from Jesus because he is not only the cosmic counselor, he is also a very personal counselor to each one of his children. He calls his sheep by name. And if any one of you is here this morning, almost this afternoon, and you're outside of that kingdom, I know what counsel Jesus has for you. It's very simple. Repent and believe. Turn from your self-centered way and turn to him as your Savior and Lord. Repent of your rebellion and independence from God and turn and put your faith in him alone for the salvation of your sins, for a new heart, and for a blessed eternity. That's his counsel for you from his word. Repent and believe the gospel. So he is a wonderful counselor. He is called eternal father. In John 10, he's the good shepherd. He loves us with the love of a perfect father. He cares for us. He provides for us. He protects us. He is called the prince of peace. Sin in the beginning messed up what was the original ideal situation in the garden. Peace was lost in the garden. Warfare and division came in. When sin came in, there was 
There was division between man and God, division between the man and his wife. There was strife between the man and the creation as, as the earth yielded only by the sweat of his brow, and the whole creation is groaning. Sin brought a lack of peace to the world. Jesus Christ comes to restore peace, and in every dimension. Primarily, he comes to restore our peace with God. We're at enmity with God, and we're called children of wrath. But Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That translates into internal peace. All is well with my soul. I'm right with God through Jesus Christ, and I have this peace that passes comprehension. And that spills over into social peace because his people are made into peacemakers insofar as it depends on you, Romans 12, 18. Live peaceably with all men. And one day Jesus will bring about cosmic peace and create a new heavens and a new earth. So he is the Prince of Peace. One final point from the text. What is the power behind this new day? A new day is coming. It will be ushered in by the coming of Messiah. It's already come in its first installment. It is a time of of light and life and freedom and joy and peace. What's the power behind this new day? The end of verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The designation Lord of hosts means his universal rulership that encompasses every force or army, heavenly, cosmic, and earthly. It means that Yahweh is determined to send his son to accomplish this work and that nothing on earth, nothing in heaven, nothing in the universe can thwart it. This should remind us of Psalm 2. In that Psalm, we are told that the nations are raging. They're in an uproar. The kings of the earth are taking their stand against Yahweh and against his anointed. But in contrast to that tumultuous rebellion taking place on planet earth, in Psalm 2, the scene shifts to heaven. And there, everything is tranquil and calm. In the face of the nations raging against him and his Christ, Yahweh sits calmly but angrily on his throne, and it says he laughs and he scoffs. It's not the laughter of delight. It's the laughter of derision. And he says, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Friends, he's done that already. The Christ has come as a child. He has died. He's been raised And he sits at the Father's right hand, waiting to come again and make all things new. Brothers and sisters, in this day in which we live of seemingly unprecedented and growing rebellion in the world against God and his anointed son, Jesus, be assured that none of God's purposes can be thwarted. None will be disrupted or frustrated. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God is saving his elect and he will save all of his elect and the world and the kings raging will not frustrate one iota of God's plan for the ages. 
Many of us are among his elect people. We have nothing to fear, but only God to thank for the fact that he has included us in this glorious kingdom. Our lives personally have gone from gloom to glory, right? And this is just a foretaste of the glory that we will experience in the age to come. But if you are not yet, if you have not yet come to Jesus for salvation, a salvation that has begun here and will be continued into eternity, I want to invite you to leave the gloom of a life separated from God and to come to God through Jesus for the light and the life and the freedom and the peace and the joy that he offers and he will give you now in this life, but it will be perfected forever in heaven. Let's pray and sing a final hymn. Father, thank you that in history, gloom turned to glory as you sent your son Jesus to this earth. And thank you that in many of our personal lives, our personal gloom and darkness and oppression has turned to light and life and freedom all because of your mercy to us in Jesus Christ. Father, if there are any among us who have not come into that light in life, by your grace, would you bring them from the gloom of a life separated from you into the light and glory of knowing you through Jesus Christ. We ask in his